Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We're delighted that you can be with us today. Whether you are joining us on KFUO 850 AM here in St. Louis or anywhere around the world on KFUO.org, we bid you welcome and are glad you can be here to study God's Word with us. As is our custom in this class, we're going to be looking at three scripture lessons today, the lessons that are assigned not for today, Sunday, May 24, but actually for next Sunday, May 31, which happens to be the day of Pentecost. And so we'll look at those lessons in just a moment. Let's begin first, however, with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the outpouring of your Spirit to your church we thank you also for the Spirit's activity in our lives, calling us to faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of our sin and continuing to strengthen and sustain us in that same faith. We pray the Spirit's presence and guidance today as we study your word to us. We pray that the Spirit might lead us to further understanding and further uh, knowledge of your word and understanding of your will for us as your children as well. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our only Savior. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, next Sunday is Pentecost, and we'll be talking about that quite a bit in our second lesson. Uh, the three lessons we'll look at today are Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 through 30. Then we'll look at the actual uh, first portion, actually, the Pentecost account uh, in Acts 2, verses 1 through 21 where we get uh, what happened, first of all, on the day of Pentecost, and then uh, some of Peter's sermon up through verse 21. And then finally, we'll be taking a look at the gospel lesson, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. First of all, we look at the Old Testament lesson, Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 through 30, and this has to do with the Spirit, but it is a different Jewish festival that is noted here, uh, and we'll talk about that just a little bit. Let me give you a little background, first of all, in, in, in terms of what has happened just prior to our text. Uh, Moses uh, is leading the people of Israel uh, to the Promised Land. They're, they're, coming, they're out in the wilderness. Uh, the people earlier in Numbers 11 are complaining that they do not have meat to eat, and Moses, when he hears this, uh, of course, the people did have the manna. It's not like they had nothing out there, uh, which tasted like cakes baked with oil, uh, we read in Numbers 11. Uh, but then the people begin to idealize uh, their existence back in Egypt. And they, they're saying, uh, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And so they're idealizing uh, what they had back in Egypt and complaining that it's just so terrible out here in the wilderness. And Moses just really at that point has sort of a meltdown and in effect asks God, you know, what did I, what did I do to deserve this? Uh, let me just read for you starting at verse 11 uh, in Numbers 11. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servants? In other words, why are you dealing with me this way? And why, why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth? 
that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once, if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So Moses here is so distraught, is in such despair, he actually asked God to strike him dead right then and there. He said, you know, the line, I, I, the burden is too heavy for me. I cannot carry this people alone. Then God, hearing Moses cry, comes up with a solution. Uh, in verse 16, he says, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. What God is doing here is essentially appointing 70 people to assist Moses, so that Moses, again, doesn't have to carry the burden alone. Um, there is, of course, a, a lesson to be learned here, and I think especially for pastors uh, who sometimes perhaps can feel as though they're carrying the burden alone. Um, and sometimes I, I must say that pastors are perhaps that's a self-inflicted burden that they have. Uh, but God has blessed us, of course, with the priesthood of all believers in the church. And all believers, using the gifts God has, has blessed them with, you know, serve our Lord. It's all not, you know, not all, just the pastor. And uh, so there is a good lesson, uh, first of all, before we get into this, a uh, good lesson here for all of us, I think, but especially for pastors uh, when it comes to God's plan in his church. Now, let's, let's get into the actual lesson, Numbers 11, 24 through 30. That's been the backdrop now. And by the way, God, God, God provides uh, more meat than they could ever want or desire to his people, in addition to appointing these uh, 70. Uh, let's go on, though, and get right into the lesson, starting at verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Let's stop there. He went out. Then he's, it, that would be from the tent of meeting. And while this sometimes in the Old Testament, uh, this phrase tent of meeting refers to the holy place in the tabernacle, it seems clear here from the context that this is that separate tent that Moses had set up outside the camp. Uh, if you want to read about it, we won't take the time here, but Exodus 33, verse 7, and, and really 7 and following, verses 7 and following, uh, give a good description of this. It was set up outside of the camp, and when Moses would go in it, uh, the pillar of a cloud and the pillar of fire uh, would be there as well, again, um, signaling God's presence uh, to the people, and he would meet with him there. That seems to be the tent that we're talking about here. And this is the tent where, again, Moses gathers uh, these people as God had instructed him, and they're around the tent of meeting. And uh, this, again, follows God's instruction from verse 16. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. So God is in effect here, uh, validating, I guess you would say, the selection of these 70. He speaks to him, 
uh, that would be Moses, and took some of the spirit that was on him, on Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Well, this again is validating the 70 whom Moses selected. Uh, they were to be men that he knew, so men of good uh, reputation, trusted, we might say. And we see here, of course, a parallel to what we are going to see in Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit comes upon the disciples and they speak, uh, they, they speak in other known languages at the time. So the, the parallelism here, the Spirit coming and resting on them and something miraculous happening as a result. In this case, they prophesied. Uh, remember, prophet, uh, prophets were not only predictors of the future, but were also uh, teachers. Uh, I always like to use the phrase they would both foretell, foretell the future, and forthtell, F-O-R-T-H, forthtell uh, the word of God. And uh, it was temporary. It, they did not continue doing it. So this miraculous demonstration here was a temporary demonstration. Now we get a rather interesting uh, event happening here and a seemingly very human reaction that takes place as a result. Let me read, uh, starting at verse 26, and I'll go all the way through the end, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Well, something, uh, you, you notice what's happening here. These two men uh, remained in the camp. They did not go out to the tent of meeting. Again, it was outside the camp. They were, were uh, staying behind. And notice that they were among the 70 that were registered. So they were among the 70 that were chosen. And the Spirit rested on them as well, even though they had not gone out next to the tent of meeting as God had instructed Moses to lead them out there. They stayed behind for whatever reason, we don't know. And they began to prophesy back in the camp. So the young man uh, wants to go out and, you might say, squeal on them, let Moses know what's happening. It seems here that the intent of this young man also uh, is the same as Joshua's, that they are, you might say, looking out for Moses and his authority and his power, that uh, there should be no one else but Moses doing this uh, for some reason. And we see here how Moses has the perfect reaction. When, when Joshua says to stop them, uh, Moses asks them the question, are you jealous for my sake? And, of course, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, they were... Uh, seeing a rivalry here, instead of both of them being on the same page, they were seeing a rivalry happening here, and uh, they 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 were siding with Moses when it came to this. And Moses' answer is is a great one: Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them, 
So again, uh, Moses is seeing that, you know, no matter who it is, it is the Lord's work that is being done here. And there should be no rivalries. There should be no jealousies. Um, there's no reason to have a, you know, this is not a contest of some sort. And it is reminiscent, or it does remind one, of a situation uh, in Luke chapter 9, verses 49 through 50. Uh, John says to Jesus, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. <laughs> so, you know, a very similar type of event taking place there uh, between John wanting to, you know, have Jesus come down on this person uh, because they were not one of them, you know, and, and yet they were doing it in Jesus' name. Same thing here. Uh, it is the Lord's work that is being done. They are all pulling in the same direction, and Moses sees that. Now, there's an obvious application here for us today. Uh, in congregations, especially congregations where there are multiple pastors, two or three or even more perhaps, uh, it is very easy for rivalries and jealousies and uh, you know, sides to be taken. We think of... Uh, uh, the Corinthian church, for example, where Paul in 1 Corinthians, you know, sees the, the, fra the factions that exist within that church as well. Some following Paul, some Apollos, some Cephas, and so on. It is, uh, it is seemingly one of Satan's favorite uh, methods of operation is to divide and set up different camps, let's say, within the same congregation. We always have to be on guard for that. The pastors themselves have to set the tone for this and speak well and support of, uh, one another uh, when there might be opportunities to be critical or to um, point out how you would do things differently. Uh, this is just not a good practice in the church. And we remember, as Moses leads us here, that we are all, in the Lord's church, it is all the Lord's work together. We are all members of the body of Christ, and not to be divided one against the other. And uh, that's uh, certainly one of the main emphases in this lesson. But again, I think on Pentecost, we're looking at how, again, even in the Old Testament, the Spirit was active and was placed upon uh, these 70, and they were prophesying. You know, I think sometimes people may have the wrong impression that the Holy Spirit was never active prior to Pentecost, and that is just certainly not true. We go all the way back to the creation in Genesis chapter 1, the very first verses in the scriptures, and we see the Spirit present there, hovering on the water. So we have to be careful, especially on the day of Pentecost, that we don't give the impression that, well, now the Spirit is making an appearance and hasn't been uh, active and present uh, in the church prior to that. That's simply not true. All right, so some background and uh, a great lesson from the Old Testament. A couple of major things to be learned from that. Let's turn now to the main uh, focus of the day, and that is the account of uh, the first portion, anyway, of the Pentecost account from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. 
And let me give you just, again, a little bit of background on Pentecost, uh, what it was, uh, what was uh, happening there. Pentecost was 50 days uh, after the Passover Sabbath. So in our, in our understanding, in our calculation, that's 50 days after Easter. We recall how Christ rose from the dead, and for uh, 40 days, um, you know, walked this earth and uh, was with his disciples, taught his disciples, made many, many appearances, uh, proving without a shadow of a doubt that he was physically, bodily raised from the dead. And then on the 40th day, he ascended to uh, re- the right, uh, return to the right hand of the Father, where he lives and reigns to all eternity. So this is 10 days after the ascension, or 50 days after Easter. And this harvest festival, uh, Pentecost, was actually a Jewish, uh, all the way back to the Old Testament, uh, harvest festival. It's also referred to as the Feast of Weeks. You'll see it, uh, that's sort of a Jewish name for it. Uh, you'll see that in the scriptures. Uh, you'll also see uh, the, day, the Day of First Fruits as a reference to it also, meaning the first fruits of the harvest were to be brought forward and dedicated, given to the Lord, offered to the Lord. So it was a, a um, mainly a harvest festival. It seems as though later on, though, um, as, it, as it continued, there also seemed to be some connection made with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. But in its, in its primary intention, it is a harvest festival. So Jews would come from all over, uh, literally all over the world, as we are going to see here, for this festival. They would come to Jerusalem. And the tradition was, the custom was, that on the morning of Pentecost, farmers from near Jerusalem would bring uh, baskets forward with uh, all types of food, produce uh, in them. Uh, There would be a procession to the temple, up to the temple, as a little side note, uh, this is where what are the so-called uh, Psalms of Ascent, and that's Psalm uh, one, Psalms 120 through 136 would be recited, uh, you might say as a liturgy, uh, as they are proceeding up to Jerusalem, up to the temple. And then in the temple courts, uh, the farmers would present their offerings. So again, this is a harvest festival in Jerusalem, uh, by and large, and uh, again, a major festival where Jews would be present from all parts of the inhabited world at that time. So let's uh, begin here, and we will uh, work through this, starting at verse 1 of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's go back now and uh, look at several items here. First of all, when the day of Pentecost, so this 50 days after Easter arrived, or was filled up completely, literally is what the original language says, they, now there's been a lot written about who were the they who were uh, 
gathered together in one place. Uh, was it just the twelve, or was it possibly as many uh, many of the, the 120 uh, that we know were the, you might say, the wider group of followers of Jesus? Um, we don't know for sure, and uh, this kind of is related uh, very much to the in one place. Um, where is it that they are gathered? Uh, the temple courts, for example, would be the more likely place if there is the if they are the one hundred and twenty or the twelve. Um, there's been some speculation that was it up in the upper room still, which was not far from the temple. Um, that would seem unlikely if it's the hundred and twenty, obviously, but could be possible if it's just the twelve. Um, let's. Uh, Let's continue just a little bit. I, I want to say that the word for house that is used here, oikos, uh, is usually used for a house, uh, in that case giving maybe uh, credence to the upper room. However, it is also used in Scripture uh, to describe uh, the, the temple uh, courts, the area uh, usually um, outside uh, the temple and is used for the temple. Uh, take a look, for example, Luke 6, verse 4, Luke 19, 46. So I have always favored uh, the temple courts because of the, what happens, uh, it seems. Now, uh, you know, the, the uh, utter, uttering of um, speaking in the other known languages or other tongues and the others from all over hearing this, it is possible that they were gathered in the temple courts when this, was, when this happened, when this event happened, or if they were in the upper room, that they ran down to uh, the temple area. We just don't know, ultimately, I guess, for sure. Um, now, again, the phenomenon that occurred here, uh, they, uh, these, these disciples, uh, 12 or 120 or however many they were, heard the sound like a muddy rushing wind. Now, wind, of course, is used in the scriptures. You think of Jesus, for example, in his discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Uh, verse 8 says that the wind blows where it will, and you know the sound of it, but know not where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, and there's also in... Uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, he is told to prophesy to the wind, and then life comes into those uh, dead, lifeless uh, uh, corpse, uh, corpses or skeletons uh, on the wilderness uh, ground. So in Scripture, the wind is associated with the Spirit and with life. Um, and, of course, it's not only a, an audio uh, uh, Phenomenon, but we also get these tons of fire. It's also a visual uh, and audio manifestation of the Spirit's coming. Uh, we have them uh, in terms of uh, tons as of fire. Uh, we think of fire in the Old Testament also, uh, representing God's presence with his people, uh, certainly at uh, the pillar of fire that went before the people of God at night when they were in the wilderness. Uh, we don't know exactly where these tons rested on them. Uh, you'll see various artist depictions. Uh, we're simply not uh, told. Were they on their heads? Were they on their shoulders? We just don't know. Uh, how many were on each one? We just don't know. It isn't said. It isn't uh, uh, described. 
Uh, now, the big thing is, though, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, think of the similarity to our Old Testament lesson to the 70. And began to speak in tongues, just like the 70 began to prophesy. Uh, at, in this case, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, important point to make here. Uh, it's clear that these were known languages at that time. We're going to see in the, in the uh, next paragraph how all of these visitors to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost were understanding what was being said because they were hearing it being uttered in their own language. So it uh, is clear here that what is happening as these disciples uh, are given the utterance uh, in other known languages as a gift by the Spirit. Now, let me uh, go on, and we'll see exactly what I'm talking about here. Verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Let's stop here. So in Jerusalem, for this festival... There were devout men from every nation under heaven. In other words, there were Jews from every uh, nation, God-fearing Jews from every nation. Now, at the sound, what sound are we talking about here? Not the wind, but the hearing of these uh, disciples speaking in these known languages. Uh, they came together. They were bewildered. Uh, these men who were, now I, we should say here again, these are Jews, and we're going to see some of the territories they are from. They are Jews who have been dispersed uh, throughout the known world at that time. And they are bewildered because they hear that these disciples uh, speaking known languages. Uh, their, their common language uh, that they would use back in their home uh, area. And uh, verse 7 they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And, of course, the answer is yes. These are uh, Galileans, uh, for the most part, blue-collar uh, Galileans, who would not have been instructed in all of these different foreign languages. And that's what is astonishing about all this. Uh, verse 8, And how is it that we, these people, these visitors here, each of us in his own native language. And then there are a whole list of, of countries, territories uh, given here. I'm not going to do a lot about them, about each one of them. Uh, just a few comments. The first grouping here in verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. These were uh, territories just east uh, of Judea, and they were among the earliest of the dispersion of the Jews when the Assyrians came and conquered the northern tribes. And they, for the most part, still uh, spoke Aramaic. So these were kind of going outward here. First of all, some of these are, are closer, and they're all kind of grouped together uh, to the east of Judea. Uh, many of them, again, descendants of the northern tribes uh, that were uh, taken over, uh, conquered by Assyria uh, around 722 uh, B.C. 
Then we go on, Judea, and Judea, of course, is right where they're at. Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. And these are areas, for the most part, in Asia Minor, where we know large groups of Jews resided. Then you notice you even got Egypt. We're going, you know, obviously very far south here at this point. Parts of Libya, so the northern part of what we call Africa today, belonging to Cyrene. And notice here even visitors from Rome, the head city, the capital city, we might say, of that time, the only uh, European, we might say today, uh, country or territory uh, named here in this entire grouping. But just think of the diversity uh, that we've got here. We've got from Egypt all the way up to Rome and just about everything in between all represented here. Then verse 11, both Jews and proselytes. So proselytes would be converts to Judaism. They would be Gentiles uh, who were uh, converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabians, we've got a couple more uh, territories mentioned here. We hear them telling, again notice, in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And although we're not given the exact content of their proclamation, uh, one would certainly think that a part of the mighty works of God are what God did not that long ago, 50 days earlier, uh, in the raising of Jesus from the dead after on Good Friday he had paid for the sins of the world, proving to be the long-awaited Messiah uh, that uh, these Jews were awaiting. So, uh, again, we don't know the content, but they are, they are expressing, proclaiming the mighty works of God. Verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Well, you got to wonder, was this, did they actually think uh, they, were, they were drunk, they were filled with new wine? Or was that just said, you know, in a, in a sort of a sarcastic uh, or rhetorical way? Um, and, uh, you know, maybe just a pause here for a moment. We'll look at uh, Peter's uh, first words of his sermon in just a bit. But you've got to wonder again, think of all of those territories and the, the huge geographic span uh, represented there in Jerusalem uh, for Pentecost, you've got to wonder what happened when all these visitors went back home. We're going to see uh, next week in uh, the second portion of Peter's sermon, we're going to see how it, it comes to a climax in, in verse 38 of chapter 2, where you know Peter says, uh, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, and you will receive, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you've got to wonder then what happened uh, as a result of all of these visitors there in Jerusalem that day going back home. You've got to believe that they didn't just go home and simply remain silent, but probably went to their own synagogues and began telling what had happened when they visited Jerusalem on that Pentecost. And you have to wonder there uh, how many people were brought to faith in those, all of those territories and cities uh, across that entire span. And uh, would that actually mark 
the beginning of the church, uh, the Christian church in those territories. Um, it's clear from everything we see here that God's intent is to spread, obviously, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is not going to be kept in Jerusalem, that it is going to be exactly as Jesus said uh, when he ascended, that uh, the disciples would receive power from on high, and they would be his witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That this good news is intended for all people in all territories. And so uh, that's, again, the main focus of Pentecost. Uh, now, let's get into uh, Peter's sermon here. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Um, if we had more time, we'd talk about how amazing it is that Peter uh, is the one that does this. Uh, in some ways, obviously, this is a characteristic of Peter's, uh, had been uh, throughout the previous three years. He is always quick to speak, uh, not always thinking things through, but quick to speak. However, Peter is also the one, remember, uh, who shamefully denied even knowing his Lord in the courtyard following Jesus' arrest. Uh, denied him not once, not twice, but three times before the rooster crowed, exactly as Jesus had predicted he would. Um, and then following Christ's resurrection, remember how he reinstates Peter, uh, asking him, you know, do you love me uh, three times? And in effect, uh, reinstates Peter. So what a, what a working of God that it is Peter who stands up with the 11. So here notice, um, those who like to say it was only the 12 uh, point to verse 14 and say standing with the 11. Now again, uh, they could have separated themselves from the 120 or so. Um, this is not necessarily conclusive here at all. But he lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So this is that uh, third hour of the day, which we would say is roughly 9 a.m. in the morning. And remember when I gave the background uh, earlier, it's at this time. Uh, that the, this procession would have been taking place, probably already arrived uh, in the temple courts, and these offerings either were being made, had been made already perhaps, or were in the process perhaps of being offered. This, uh, these baskets full of produce and crops uh, were being offered. It's only the third hour of the day, Peter says. Now, um, you know, even acknowledging you know, that this is ridiculous, this is not logical. Your explanation that they are filled with new wine um, is, is simply uh, preposterous. Now, Peter goes on and says, they're not, they're not drunk, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, and gives, uh, where Joel gives a prophecy about the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh, and about the prophecy that would take place as a result. Um, he, he talks about the wonders and the signs 
that would happen in these last days. But let's, let's read these verses through, starting at verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Well, Peter, again, is, is connecting Joel's prophecy with exactly what is happening, happening here. Um, in the last days, well, we think of the last days as the fact that, or as beginning, rather, uh, with the New Testament era, uh, with Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We would say we are living in the latter days, or the last days, uh, as we are here on this earth, even now. Um, then also, uh, it is uh, pouring out of the Spirit, notice there, on all flesh. So, it is a gift without restraint, and uh, there are no limitations. There, no one is excluded uh, from this gift. It is a universal blessing for all, uh, this spirit that is given. And what's the result? Notice again, it is the prophecy. And as I said before, uh, prophecy is both foretelling and forthtelling, F-O-R-T-H telling. That seems to be what these disciples were doing. Uh, we get the content of what they were saying from those people who were amazed, saying that they are telling the wonders of God in their own languages. So it doesn't appear that they were necessarily, tr necessarily predicting the future. Uh, it appears that they were simply teaching the Word of God. And as I said, I would certainly think uh, making application to Christ and Christ as a major portion of that wonders of God. Um, notice how, again, visions, prophecy, uh, dreams uh, are all the result of the working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see that throughout the scriptures uh, in the working of the Spirit, in the prophets, for example, uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, that is, a, a again, um, a prediction of Joel, and it will continue even in the last days here as we have. Um, they shall prophesy, uh, verse, uh, let's jump down to verse 19 here, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And then we go on to say, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, just a few things here uh, to pick out in the interest of time. Uh, this turning to darkness, you know, some people I think uh, don't consider the fact that actually about seven weeks earlier, the sun did turn to darkness uh, as Jesus hung on the cross. Uh, darkness covered the face of the earth. And um, that already, you know, you can certainly make that direct application that this is, the, in a way, uh, referring to the day of the Lord when, when the ultimate sacrifice, 
the ultimate judgment upon sin was made by Christ on a cross. Um, the moon turning to blood, I was reading that there was a Pasch, what's called a Paschal full moon uh, on that day, which may have appeared to be red. That's happening, notice, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And we think of that ultimate day of the Lord, which still awaits uh, when Christ will return, not in meekness and humility as he did when he came the first time, but just the opposite, in all power and glory and magnificence, when the trumpet of God shall sound, the dead shall be raised, and that will be a day really of, of, of two dramatically different things. It will be a day of judgment. We think of Matthew 25, for example, the great separation of the sheep and the goats, and the, the uh, goats hearing, you know, the depart from me for I never knew you, and the uh, sheep hearing the, you know, come inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Uh, nothing in between, so to speak, on that day. It's either going to be a day of great terror and judgment or a day of great rejoicing and just a, a, a wonderful, joy-filled experience as we are reunited uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with all who have gone before us and all who will be coming after us. We look forward to and anticipate that day uh, with great excitement and, and long for that day to come. Many others, uh, unfortunately, of course, deny uh, that that day will come and there will be a great surprise, <laughs> shock uh, on that day for those who are still alive and are doubting that that day will come. Notice there that what a great verse we end on in verse 21 Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, the universal nature of what has come to pass. And we will uh, go on to hear next week how at the end of this, 3,000 souls were added that day to the number being saved. Maybe just a point here also that, you know, sometimes we perhaps make such a, a big deal about, you know, pointing to what happened with the wind, the fire, and speaking in the known languages. Well, all of that, when you think about it, was simply to gain attention, to validate uh, the message that Peter was about to deliver. You know, it again, the important thing was the Word of God being proclaimed and that same Holy Spirit working through that Word to create faith in the 3,000 who were added that one day. And we don't want to, I think, spend an over amount of emphasis and time on the miraculous gifts, as miraculous as they were, the phenomena that occurred. But the key thing, again, is what Peter is proclaiming here. And again, we will get the uh, other half of that next week as we finish off uh, the Pentecost account. So, in the interest of time, I better move on to the uh, gospel lesson here. And this is actually taking place at a different festival. Uh, this is, again, from John chapter 7, and we will be starting in verse 37. It's uh, actually quite a, a brief lesson, 37 through 39. 
This actually is the Feast of Tabernacles that is taking place here in John 7. Uh, tabernacles are dwellings, we might say, and this Jewish festival uh, remembered the time when God's people were in the wilderness and were living um, in, uh, in portable uh, shelters, in shelters. Uh, and so to celebrate this, people actually camped out and made uh, little tent-like dwellings for themselves uh, using palm branches and myrtle branches and willow branches tied together. And they would form the structure of the dwelling. So they would actually go out and construct these and uh, actually uh, camp out in them during the time of this festival. It was a seven-day festival, although there are there are reports, uh, verses rather, that talk about the eighth day of the feast, and I'll say a word about that in just a moment. Um, there was uh, uh, then a procession into the temple grounds, very similar uh, to the procession, I said, for uh, Pentecost. Uh, people would wave these branches, and there would be a flute playing and dancing. It was a very festive uh, procession. And then... Uh, uh, each, this is kind of an important thing connected to what Jesus is going to say here. As a part of this festival, each day a uh, priest, a Jewish priest, would draw water from the pool of Siloam and bring it up in a golden flagon. And uh, he would bring it up in this procession, as a part of that procession. A trumpet would accompany this flagon of water, and the water was poured into a bowl at the basin of the altar, where the sacrifices were made. And this was done in remembrance of how God provided water in the wilderness for his people, uh, perhaps even at Meribah, for example. Um, it also, the festival also included prayers for water for the present time, the current uh, time for them. And... Uh, one thing I must say, I, I've been blessed to be able to travel to Israel twice now, and what really, one of the things that really was impressed upon me is the importance of water, and how water can be used even as a weapon. If you poison someone's well, for example, uh, and that was the routinely done as a tactic in Bible times, but just the importance of water itself in that region cannot be overstated. And so this festival uh, included this drawing of water by the priest and prayers for the continuation of water being provided by God in the current day. So this is what happened in the Feast of Tabernacles now, not, not, uh, not uh, Pentecost, but Tabernacles. So let's go and read, again, it's not very long. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was seven days. By the way, you can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and Leviticus chapter 23, if you'd like to do so separately. So on the last day of the Feast, must probably the seventh day, maybe the eighth day, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So, here Jesus is going to use the imagery of water and the drinking of water, the drinking being the, the believing in him, the, the receiving of that which he has to give, the life-giving water. And again, the significance of water connected with his festival 
is uh, Jesus is using that imagery to teach an even deeper spiritual truth concerning himself. So, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we can see a a real comparison here uh, with the conversation that Jesus had uh, with the Samaritan woman at the well, of course, in John chapter 4. Uh, remember that he asked her for a drink, and there's a long discussion, that conversation that takes place, and uh, she is astounded at uh, what he is saying. And Jesus says to her that, you know, if anyone drinks of the water that he has to give, they will never thirst again. Uh, and uh, she wants some of that water. And uh, he says, uh, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's in verse 14 of John 4. So we have a, a very similar statement here, one that, one that certainly calls to mind the earlier uh, discussion Jesus had with this Samaritan woman at the well. Um, Out of his heart, Jesus says, will flow rivers of living water. So again, it's this living water, uh, again, symbolizing faith and eternal life that Jesus has to give and freely gives to whoever uh, would receive it. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John tells us here, that this outpouring is to be the Spirit. And those who believed were to receive, and of course we have already read the fulfillment of that. Um, The Spirit had not yet been given in the extraordinary way, we might say, um, with regard to Pentecost and the phenomena that occurred there. Um, Jesus was not yet glorified. And the glory that is being spoken of here is his actual crucifixion. Uh, We get a glimpse of this in John chapter 12, uh, verses 23 through 27. Um, Let me just read that for just a moment. Uh, You know, many people would probably not think of, of the cross as being the place where Jesus is glorified, but that's exactly what I've, I've often said, that the glory of God is no more clearer uh, presented and, and visible than when God in Jesus Christ hangs on a cross and dies for sinners. That is the true glory of our God. Starting in verse 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come, to this hour. Father, glorify your name." And that's exactly what the Father would do through his Son on the cross.
Um, so here uh, John is just explaining that Jesus had not yet been crucified. Uh, those who believed had not yet received the Spirit in this miraculous uh, outpouring and demonstration at Pentecost. And so they yet um, had, not, had not been the recipients yet. Uh, one other passage that came to mind is Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, where Isaiah says, With joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And again, a, a beautiful way of picturing uh, the water, the life-giving water, which it really is. It is life-giving, life-sustaining water uh, in the Middle East and is, is very crucial. We, of course, as Lutherans, would also think of the life-creating water that God utilizes in and through baptism, through his, his means of grace in baptism, where, again, uh, we are washed and made clean by our God. Uh, we are made uh, his children. We are made heirs of everlasting life. So on this uh, day of uh, Pentecost um, and, and the uh, giving, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it is good for us, of course, to remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that God has performed in each and every one of us. You know, as Luther says, of course, in his explanation of the third article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. And when you stop and think about it, if it were not for the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, everything that Christ did in his life, death, and resurrection, as wonderful and splendid as it is, would be of no benefit to us, for we simply could not receive it. We could not believe it, as Luther correctly summarizes, by our own nature. We are turned the opposite way from God and uh, cannot understand the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. It's only with the gift of the Holy Spirit that these blessings, forgiveness and eternal life, are brought to us through the faith that he creates, through the faith that he sustains. And we pray that he will keep working in our lives, that he will keep us strong and steadfast in this one true faith until the day we are called to the nearer presence of God. May God do that and bless us in that way each and every day through his Spirit. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you. Amen.